Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. Bibles to the book of Hosea, chapter 4, and a brief introduction here. Uh, we have finalized our chapter 2, and instead of going straight to chapter 3, we're going to skip over chapter 3, but not, not because we don't like chapter 3, but because chronologically chapter 3 fits better towards the end of the book. So we're going to teach on chapter 3 at the end of the book around chapters 14, and, um, and that's going to be a very good summary of what the entire book has been all about. So it's only five verses in chapter 3, but it's a great summary of what we've been learning about in Hosea. So that's why we're jumping straight into chapters 4. And I want you to hold on to these, to these next couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to go uh, at full speed uh, in the in the previous uh, teachings, we've spent a lot of time in chapter 1 and chapter 2, almost two to three months in both uh, chapters. But today and the following weeks, we're going to go one chapter at a time. So we're going to go, uh, we're going to fly through chapters 4 through 8 because they're relatively similar to what we spoke about on, in chapters 1 and 2. However, they're a little bit more detailed and more focused on the main issue. So, if you believe it or not, we're actually going to finish chapter 4 today, and um, the next couple of weeks, chapters 4 through 8, are going to be very important for us to really get in our hearts and in our heads. So, I would urge you to study chapters 4 through 8 and get kind of a good consensus of what God is speaking about in these four chapters. It's a direct accusation to certain people and certain elements of Israel, and so we get right off the bat, a reminder of what God is doing, what God is, in a sense, feeling from his people. And so chapter 4 is the start of this detailed accusation. And you guys saw the video. We're, we were highlighting the first three verses in Hosea chapter 4, which we'll read in a bit. But Hosea 4 is dealing with God's righteous anger once again. So we got this glimpse of God's righteous anger in the beginning of chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2. We also got a, a, uh, an introduction to God's grace and mercy in both chapters. But now we have, to, we have to kind of come to an agreement or an understanding on why God is upset. And, and this always balances out our, our kind of understanding of God. And, and I've mentioned this time and time again while we've been going through the book of Hosea that at times God is only a nice, loving God. But then you come across verses in chapter 4 and, and chapters 5, 6, and 7, you become across a God who is angry and says things that kind of shake you and you realize, wait a second, that's not the God that has been presented to me 
through popular culture this entire time. I, I thought God was different. God is supposed to be different. God is supposed to be all loving and all merciful. And although he is, we cannot neglect these important aspects of God's nature. And so at the outset, chapter 4 zooms in on a particular area of his righteous anger. So I want to summarize it with the first three verses in chapter 4. So if you have your Bible open to chapter 4, we're going to read together the first three verses, and you'll get more of a feeling of what's going on. And it says this, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy. I want you guys to highlight that word, a controversy, with the inhabitants of the land. And I want you guys to get the distinction here. He's speaking directly to Israel, and his controversy is with the inhabitants of the land. There's two distinct groups going on. He says, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Verse 2, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. I want you guys to highlight that too. Verse 3, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Those three verses highlight God's Contention, God's righteous anger, God's controversy, as the ESV puts it, controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Now, there's a distinction between those who are the inhabitants and those who are children of God. And the obvious thing that's going on is that Israel was supposed to be distinct to God. They were supposed to be his children, but they have followed in the ways of those who are inhabiting Israel. And so now they are becoming less like God, less children of God, and more like those inhabitants that have taken uh, place in the land. And now God is going directly to them. But all of this is a result of direct lack of leadership. What's, why is God angry? Why is God upset? If we're going to study chapter 4, we have to come, uh, we have to answer these questions. We have to realize that God can get upset, and when he is upset, there's a reason for it. Remember, God isn't arbitrary. God doesn't just get upset for no reason. There is a specific purpose that coincides with his righteous anger. One of the first things that verse 1 says is that there is no faithfulness in the land. The Hebrew word is emet. There is no truthfulness. There is no integrity. All of us understand what that means because we all want to be in relationships with people who are truthful, people who are full of integrity, People who are faithful to what they say. As a matter of fact, if we're going to bring back and tie in this marriage concept of Hosea, we want to marry someone who is full of integrity, who is truthful to what they say, and who is faithful. Correct? Everyone wants to marry someone who will be faithful to them for their dying day, until their dying day. Everyone wants to marry someone or be in a relationship with someone who is truthful. 
You don't want to wake up one morning, married after 15 years, and realize that your husband has had a separate family for the past 20 years. You'll be like, well, you should have told me that before we got married. People want truth. And God is no different. If you can't be truthful to God, the obvious consequence would be you can't be truthful to others. You can't have integrity with others. And remember that this isn't just detracted or detached from God by saying this is what God wants for himself. This always implies relational value with those people that are in the land. God wants to be faithful to them, to show them what faithfulness is. In return, they will be faithful back to him, but also they will be faithful to each other. So this all makes sense in God's kingdom. God is seeing and has wanted and has yearned and has established that his people should be faithful and true to each other. There are to be people of integrity, a community that reflects truthfulness at all areas. So in a sense, this community would lack gossip. This community would lack what the Spanish call it, chisme. This community will, would lack false accusations towards one another or speaking badly towards one another. This community would reflect God's faithfulness, truthfulness, and integrity. In a sense, it would reflect the wholeness of God. If God's people are to be in a relationship with him, they are to show this to everyone else. Now that falls hard on our modern ears because Christianity today is in the lips of those on CNN and NPR. Christianity today is on the lips and on the mouths of those who Point the finger at God and make fun of God and make fun of his church. Christianity today is in the hands of the world to a certain extent. They point the finger at Christianity. They point the finger at those who live for God. They point the finger and then they say, look at your leaders who are at the forefront of your movement and look what they've done. There is no faithfulness or truthfulness or integrity in any of your leadership. And so Christianity has become the butt of the jokes. Christianity is once again the, the religion of those who lack wisdom and intelligence. It's interesting. I was watching a show and it just reversed. It, it was the perfect depiction of what Christianity is today. It was a show, it's about a tech company that, that is trying to get funded and trying to get others to, to uh, jump into their corporation together, other, other companies, and they all come in, but within that group of people, there is one company whose CEO is Christian. And he is a closet Christian because they're in Silicon Valley and they do not want to other people to know that they're Christian because if, they, if anybody else knows that they're Christian, 
everyone will move away from them and they will not be able to function in Silicon Valley because the Christianity of today is that, the butt of a joke. It is for those who are bigoted. It is for those who, who, who don't believe in the community of everyone else, who don't believe in the rights of people. I was telling this to my wife. I was like, I can't believe how they reversed it completely. And so the guy gets uh, kicked out of the, the corporation and the, and the entities because he's Christian. And then he gets upset with the guy that, that's running it by saying, why did you have to tell everybody that I was a Christian? I wanted to keep it a secret. And now he can't get a job in Silicon Valley. It's an it's, it's a accurate depiction of what Christianity is. But because, and to a certain extent, this community has lacked faithfulness and truthfulness and integrity. And we're going to get a little bit more into that. But I want you to know why God is upset. At the end of the day, the people that he's caring for are getting hurt. The people that he loves are getting hurt, but his name is being mocked. That is why at the beginning of Exodus, he says, I am who I am. His name is to be holy. Part of the Ten Commandments of Israel was to keep his name holy. We should not use the name holy of the Lord our God in vain. It is to remain respectable, holy, before everyone. But in this case, in Hosea's case, the name of God isn't. The name of God has been blasphemed and has been set aside by their lack of faithfulness. God is also upset that there is no steadfast love. If you keep reading in verse 1, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love. Henry did an accurate summary of what this word means a couple of weeks ago when he talked about God's hesed, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his true love. Obviously, God has given that love to them, but they haven't reciprocated. They haven't given it back, and it's obviously not going to be reciprocated with anyone else. What happens to a community that doesn't have love for one another? What happens within a community when there is no compassion towards one another? So what happens in a community when, first of all, there's no faithfulness or integrity... Secondly, there's no compassion. What happens? You get a community of people who are seeking only after themselves. Only after what they want and their needs. And they are definitely not seeking after God. So God is upset. God is angry. And he says there's no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. And then the ultimate of all of these we find in, in verse 1, there is no knowledge of God in the land. The only purpose Israel existed was to know their God. All throughout the law, it was this calling from the priests and from the word of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Remember our God. 
Remember our God. The fact that we celebrated communion today was a call to remembrance of who God is. The fact that we gather even 2,000 years later is a call to remember. We celebrate communion for what it does in our present situation, but it calls us and it begs us and it urges us to remember what God has done in us. You and I, dead in our sins. You and I, sinners. You and I, incapable of saving ourselves. And by the grace of God, we have been rescued. It calls us to remember if we forget, we will live on our own venture, on our own success. And we will forget what God has done. And therefore, we will become God because we saved ourselves. So the people here, at the end of the day, 700 years, almost, almost, not, sorry, almost a thousand years after the Exodus, they have forgotten who rescued them. They have forgotten who brought them out of Israel. And, and because they have forgotten, they have sought after other gods and has sought after other gifts and have fallen in love with wooden idols. What's important here and why God is really upset is because his nature has been completely erased from his people. I joke around with my wife a lot because one of our kids looks exactly like me and the rest I'm like, man, I don't see it. I just don't see where, 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 this, where, all, where I'm at in all these other kids. I'm brown, and they're all light-skinned. And I only have one brown-skinned kid, and he looks exactly like me. And if they were to take that away from him, if he wouldn't look like me, I wouldn't have anybody to carry on my legacy, per se, because he's my kid. He looks like me. Every one of us who, have, who are parents have kids, one of them at least, looks like you, right? You have that pride and joy that if your daughter or your son looks like you, you can say like, yeah, that's my boy or that's my girl. They, 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 they carry that gene with you. And so if it was taken away, obviously as a parent, you would feel devastated. In a sense here, what's going on is that the people of God, the children of God who were designed to look like God, look nothing like I want you to remember what Exodus chapter 34, you don't have to go there, just write it down. Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is speaking here to the people of Israel, and he's showing them that he is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7 of chapter 34 says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In a sense, God 
is depicting his nature and his character and what he is made of is steadfast love and faithfulness. What is lacking in the community of Israel in, in Hosea chapter 4 verse 1? Steadfast love and faithfulness. People who are designed by God, who have been saved by God, whom God has fathered, whom God has adopted for himself, whom God has given his identity to, look nothing like their father. They are children of someone else. They are not like their dad. And so God is upset. Because this is who he is and who he expects his people to be. And so the word reeve at the beginning, the word that I told you to highlight, the, the Lord has a controversy. He has an accusation. That's what the word uh, uh, reeve in the Hebrew means. It's a, it's a direct accusation. In a sense, what we learned in chapter 2, God is taking his people to court. That's how angry God is. That's how upset he is where he's putting up a lawsuit to his people. And you're like, man, God, that's not right. Like, man, we're just people, man. We're going to fail. We're not perfect. But God said, you are to live according to my rule and law. You are to be people of my order, not people of everyone else's order. And they have failed. And so God accuses them. And he has a contention and a controversy with them. Israel doesn't look like God, doesn't act like God, and worst of all, has forgotten God. That's, that's bad. That's terrible. These are the people of God. But they have no God in them. So now, God brings this accusation to a clear reality. Whose fault is it? If people were to look at your kids, and if your kids were to grow to be troublemakers and annoying kids and kids that no one likes, who do they blame? They blame the parents. I remember visiting a lot of homes when I was young with my with my father and and mother and my father would and my mother especially would say, "You are gonna sit by my side and not move a muscle until we leave. And if you move a muscle, you're gonna get spanked." And my mother, for those of you who knew my mother, she was hardcore. So I knew that when I would go to somebody else's house, I'd have to sit next to my mother and pray to God that I didn't have to use the bathroom and just sit there still and not do a thing. I hated it, but I had to do it. Because if not, I'd get whooped. Because people would come to our house and their kids, their blessed kids, would jump on our couches break things on our table, run back and forth the house and move, and it would drive my mom nuts. And she wouldn't say anything. She'd be like, oh. 
It's all right. That's okay. It was a gift. It was a gift. Don't worry. Break things here. Break things there. And and it was, I was like, well, how come they could do it when they come to our house? And then I remember they would leave and my mom would be like, oh, my God. We are never inviting them to our house. Like their kids, how do they not control their kids? So you obviously find fault immediately with the leadership of the kids. <laughs> Would I allow my kid to be jumping over somebody else's thing, over somebody else's couch? Would I allow my kids to, to be breaking things? Would I allow my kids to hit me in front of people and yell at me and scream? If, it, if I allow that, it's my fault. And so here, the children of God have been fostered by those whom God placed. Those whom minister to God. In a sense, they're the Old Testament mediators. In the New Testament, we have another mediator named Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, there's mediators that came before the people, which were the priests. They were the Leaders, the Levites, these were the people that mediated between man and God. And they were in charge of bringing the people to God. So in chapter 4, this anger of God comes up. Angry with the people, but he blames the leaders. The people have no faithfulness. They have no steadfast love. They have no knowledge of God, and it's the leadership's fault. Look at verse 4. Yet let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priests. And that little pronoun, you, in the Hebrew is plural. So he's talking about the Levitical system, the plurality of the, the, the priests that were to govern the people of God. God says, it is you. That's why I love that picture that they had earlier. They have, no, it's God pointing the, the, the finger. And, and, I, and, and in the New Testament time, there's a lot of us that, that say we shouldn't point fingers that, and, and that's not right, that's not merciful, that's not what God would do. Well, God directly pointed the finger to the priests. And he says, in, in, a, in a paraphrased version of verse 4, don't misunderstand me, is basically what God is saying. I have beef with the leaders. Let's get this clear straight from the beginning. My problem is with you, priest. And because the problem is with the priests, the people have fallen away. Let's look at some of the reasons why God's upset with the priests. Verse 6, they have rejected knowledge. Remember, these are people who are supposed to be filled with the fear and knowledge of God. But they have rejected knowledge. Later in verse 6, it says in the same verse, they have forgotten the law of God. This is important because Numbers states that the Levites and that the priests were to keep the law of God on their head and in their heart. 
and they were to wrap it around their arms and they have forgotten the law of God. The only thing that God wrote down as divine instruction for his people has been forgotten. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine laying down on the operating table of a surgeon about to remove a tumor in your, in your, in your stomach? And, and out of nowhere, he just says, you know what? I went through 12 years of medical school but I just completely forgot all the rules and the regulations. Oh, well, I'm going to wing it. Right? You would be like, whoa! Call somebody who knows what they're doing. Call someone who remembers the order. These people had one job. That was to know the law of God. What God had said. And he was supposed to give it to his people. And they forgot it. What does verse 7 say? They were greedy after iniquity. That is, that is a profound statement. The, the holy people, those who were supposed to guide God's people into God's presence and to live holy lives, these people were greedy after iniquity. In a sense, what it's saying here is they lusted for sin. They lusted after sin. These are the priests, these are the leaders. They loved to sin. And verse 10 says they have forsaken the Lord. That word forsaken is very important because it's a direct vision of turning their back on God. The leadership that God has placed has turned their back on God. Now you say, does God have a right to be angry? After everything God has done, after everything we have seen, after all of these years and years, hundreds upon hundreds of years of God demonstrating his faithfulness, of God demonstrating his steadfast love, of God demonstrating his truthful power in his people, does God have the right to be angry? And when you look at the status of the people of in Hosea's time, you realize that's true. And you got to remember, if you weren't here at the beginning of, of our talk on Hosea, let me remind you what's going on in this historical context. Here is a people who have been winning wars, who have been conquering lands, who are flourishing with prosperity, who are flourishing with land and fruit. Here are people around the, the, the years 750, uh, 800 to 750, they are in the pinnacle of their beauty as a people and as a country and as a nation. And because they are prosperous, all of this has begun to be embedded in their souls. They have rejected God because of their prosperity. It's dangerous to be prosperous because you have that tendency or people have that tendency to find their own strength and, and believe that they're the ones that brought themselves to where they brought themselves. They're, they tend to believe that they're the reason for their prosperity when it was God all along. 
And so in this prosperous time at the beginning of the 9th century B.C., these people are living it up. They're living the dream. And in that dream that they're living, they have forgotten and forsaken God. So God was upset. What was the primary function of these priests? God is upset with the leadership. And their primary function why they were to be priests and what they were to, supposed to do. We can read it in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 10. Again, you don't have to go there. You could just write it down. Deuteronomy 33, verse 10 says, They shall teach Jacob. Jacob is another way the Bible uses for another word or name that the Bible uses for Israel. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Two things. Really, they're summed up in one. But the two major aspects of Levitical function and order was to teach and to worship. Teach and worship. Paul repeats this in, in uh, Acts by saying we need to dedicate ourselves to the word and to prayer. The Levites and the priests, their only job was to teach people God's law and his worship. And that was it. And all of that has been forsaken, has been wiped away. The priests were the mediators between God and the people. They were to teach the people the law of God, offer sacrifices on a daily basis for, for atonement of sin, and to teach the people to live holy before God. Remember, from the beginning, Israel was separated to be a holy nation, not like everybody else. They were to live holy, sanctified before God and before others. They were to be separate and distinct but they are exactly like everyone else. They failed to teach the law. They caused people, in verse 12 it says, they caused people to leave God. Can you imagine that? The priests were the, were the people who were supposed to take people to God, and they're the primary cause of leading people away from God? They have made people turn to idols, in verse 13. They have substituted their worship to God by worshiping idols. And because they worshiped idols, the people followed and worshiped the same idols they worshiped. They turned the people of God into idol worshipers. So, God is upset. God is upset with the priests and the leaders. What's the result of all of this? Why is God so upset at the end of the day? Well, what does exist in Israel? Look at verse 2. There is swearing. That's just an Old Testament word for making covenants. And in this case, it could be false covenants with others and with other gods. So it's not that they're swearing or cursing like, like our modern terminology 
It's more of a loyalty issue. They're swearing and coveting with other gods. They're lying. There's murder. They're stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So as a result of this lack of leadership, this is what exists. Kind of of sounds like the south side of Chicago, right? Lying, murder, stealing, adultery, and bloodshed. It's hardcore. There's no leadership involved. Verse verse 6, look at what verse 6 says. People are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. People are perishing. They're being destroyed. Verse 7, as they grow in numbers, they also grow in sin. Verse 7 says it like this, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. You get it? It's just a multiplication of sinful attitudes. Sinful character is being brought out because there's no leadership. Verse 11, they have no understanding. Verse 12, they are led astray by a spirit of whoredom. They're prostituting themselves to other gods. If you read in detail from verses 12 through 16, you'll see what that spirit of whoredom is. It talks about their daughters giving themselves to prostitution in temple worship. Verse 16, they are stubborn. Does anyone know any stubborn people here? Verse 18, they are drunks. Verse 19 summarizes everything by saying, they shall be ashamed. God's wind of judgment is coming over his people, and they will be judged. All of these are consequences of a lack of spiritual leadership. This is what exists. And during a time that we live in today, this is very, very timely. As I was reading this, I I felt strong conviction by God to, to speak on behalf of what's going on in our nation, of what's going on, what's the what's the state of Christianity in 21st century America? How are people perceiving us? What is the Christian norm today? How are people seeing God by the church? The people who are supposed to represent God. The people who are supposed to act like God. The people who are supposed to live like God, be like God, and love like God. What's the state of our church in present day culture? Well, if we adopt verses 2 through 19, it's very similar. And that is why I take my job very seriously. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here to crack jokes. I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm not here to to make you want to come back on Sunday just to be cool and, and, and be in a cool environment. That's not my job. You can get that at Cirque du Soleil. You can get that anywhere else. 
My job is to instruct you in the word of God and cause you to have holy fear of God, not of me. I don't go home with you. I'm not with you all the time. I'm not with you at your job. And, and who cares if I'm with you? Who, you're not going to impress me. You don't live to impress me. You live to, in the fear of the Lord and to live upright before God. Your life needs to be holy before God, not before me. Your life needs to be holy before God, not necessarily before each other. You are to live as God indicates, not because I say. So my job is serious. I'm here on a daily basis studying God's word to give it to his people so that you know what God says. Because the day will come where you're confronted with obstacles in your life, with situations in your life, with devastation in your life, and two things can happen. You can either run away from God completely, leave the church, leave everything to do with God, or remember what the Word of God says, and most importantly, remember who God is. That is what I'm here to do for you. That is what I'm here to provide you. If I fail as these priests have failed, which is my daily prayer, believe it or not, I live in constant fear of this. That one day I can be disqualified from preaching God's word. And it can happen. Because I've seen it happen in many other people. 1988. One of the biggest devastations that hit evangelical America in 1988, one of the biggest names in evangelical America by the name of Jimmy Swagger. One of the most famous, I think second to Billy Graham back in that day. Famous man, went around the country, went around the world proclaiming God. Revivals everywhere. Thousands of people would come to his campaigns. Thousands of people would come to hear this man preach, and in 1988, he was found with a prostitute, living a double life. And because he was so famous, the news spread like a wildfire, and the name of God was put to shame. They said, look at your evangelical leadership. Look at Jimmy Swagger. That's Christianity? I'm afraid. I fear. I ask God, Lord, I am simply a man that can fail. By your grace, keep me strong. The words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 always remind me of this. I must run the race to endure. I am here to fight lest I be disqualified from preaching the word of God. I am just like any of these other people. But I do not want to cause shame to God's name. And I want each and every single one of you, even if there's only 40, 50 people here, even if that was it, I'm responsible for you. At the end of the day, you're going to stand before God on Judgment Day. Not me, for you, but you will. But I'm going to stand before God on Judgment Day and be accountable for every single one of you. So there's only 50 of you guys here, so that's, in a sense, okay. But imagine there was 5,000. 
Imagine there was 10,000. Imagine in Jimmy Swaggart's time, there was hundreds of thousands. I'm accountable. And God's going to call me, hey, I put you there to preach my word. What did you do? Did you give them my word or did you teach them some funny business? Did you entertain them for 45 minutes or did you give them my law and instruction? Because that's the only thing that's going to sustain you, friend. You leave here today, my words are not going to sustain you. God's words are going to sustain you. You leave this place remembering who God is. That's why we don't come here to have fun. That's secondary. That's tertiary. Yeah, we hang out. We love each other. What's up? I love you, man. You look good today, man. I love your clothes, man. Your outfit is amazing today, man. That's awesome. Let's hang out. Let's have some coffee. That's okay. That's good. No, no, no. But, but the primary focus of our existence as a church here on Sunday morning is to come before God and say, we adore you. We worship you. We recognize our sinful life, and we just say, Thank you for your grace. That is what we're here to do. And then we're here to say, now let me hear your word. Let me be instructed by your word. So friends, it's tough when we stick around a book for so long. You may be tempted to be like, man, like, when are we going to move on? But always remember that I didn't write this book. This isn't my, these aren't my memoirs. This is God's word. And we are to be revitalized by God's word every day. Because God's word never comes back empty. It is the only thing that sustains life. Amen? Let's get on our feet. And let's put ourselves in God's hands. Father... Make us people of your word. That we live off every word that comes out of your mouth. Father, that we don't parallel the faults of Israel of Hosea's time by getting to a place of comfort and prosperity to abandon you. But that we always live in constant awe and healthy reverence of who you are. That we always remember what you've done. And that we never forget what you're doing. And that we constantly look forward to when you will come. Help us. Help this church leadership and all the pastors of this church to guide your people in your word. And help us continue growing with hunger for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.